Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Earlier this week, while our kids were having their end-of-year Zoom celebrations for school, my husband Nate and I were having conversations about education that's a lot further down the road. We were talking about college. The impetus for the conversation was a story that Mikhail Zinstein wrote for Cal Matters. Mikhail writes, In a historic move likely to have national repercussions, the University of California Board of Regents voted today to stop requiring students to submit college interest tests, the SAT or ACT, for admissions purposes. The vote was a unanimous 23 to 0. The system has given itself until the fall of 2025 to develop a bespoke standardized test for California residents. If the UC cannot create a new test that better aligns with what students learned in school, it'll drop the testing requirement completely for Californians. Mikhail goes on to say, the landmark decision reverses more than 50 years of the UC's reliance on standardized tests to determine who gets into the vaunted public university system, whose nine undergraduate campuses regularly appear on lists of the top institutions in the country. The decision also parts with the recommendations of the Influential Academic Senate, which supported use of the SAT and ACT earlier in the spring. For me, reading that story brought a wave of relief. For Nate, the news stirred a slight feeling of resentment. After nearly 17 years of marriage, it was a rare moment when we surprised each other. But given where we came from, it kind of makes sense. Nate was homeschooled K through 12, and he's always been a great test taker. The irony of him being homeschooled is that he was the kind of learner who likely would have excelled in our K through 12 system. He's a linear thinker, good with books, great at memorization. He won his town's essay contest at age 11. He didn't take the ACT, but he got a 1510 on his SAT which put him in the 99th percentile. When he was 19, he got to shake Margaret Thatcher's hand after he got sixth place in an essay contest where all of the other prize winners were graduate students. He got an academic scholarship that paid in full for his college education. My experience was a little different. I was a public school kid all the way through, which is not to say that I was at a disadvantage. Minnesota prides itself on its excellent public education. I mostly enjoyed high school, but the school part of school was never easy for me. I spent a lot of my growing up years overcoming the belief that I wasn't as smart as other people. I remember lots of painful nights of sitting at the dinner table with one of my parents, crying because I didn't understand geometry or physics or European history. I loved reading and writing stories but struggled to make it through textbooks of any kind. All my life, my thought process when I write has looked more like a spiral than a straight line. With the exception of my English classes, PE, and choir, the parts of my day when the work felt easy and enjoyable, school was hard. I remember attempting to go through the ACT and SAT workbooks that my parents bought me, but mostly what I recall from those attempts 
was how inadequate they made me feel. When I finally did take the ACT, I got a 27, which was not an awful score. It put me in the 87th percentile. My SAT score was quite a bit lower, 1100, which put me in the 71st percentile. If you told me that I was in the 87th or even 71st percentile in most things in life, say in my writing abilities or fitness level or how effective I am as a mom, I take that as very good news. But for college admissions standards, those numbers are not good. I doubt they'd get me into many colleges today. As it turned out, those tests didn't get me into college. I don't mean that I didn't get into college, but that what got me in wasn't my brain, but my legs. My ability to run the mile and the 800 faster than all but one person in my state got me into colleges across the nation, including one Ivy League. It got me an athletic scholarship at the one I decided to attend. I understand that for a lot of people hearing this right now, for people like Nate, who worked hard for the good grades and high test scores of his youth, it may seem really unfair that I got into some great schools even though I didn't have the scores for them. But I'm going to put myself out on a limb here and say that maybe the way it happened for me is actually more fair than the way colleges typically work. Because my acceptance to college was not based on whether or not my parents had paid for tutors or put me through extensive ACT and SAT prep classes. It was based on my ability to prove that I could be dedicated and disciplined enough to excel at something. Yes, I know there was some natural talent that factored in as well, but the point I'm getting at is that maybe the things that make someone a successful college student have less to do with grades or test scores and more to do with work ethic and determination. Though I was not among the top tier of students at my high school academically, and to this day I am still not a great test taker, I worked relentlessly in my classes in college. My freshman year, I had a 4.0 GPA and would have likely maintained that if I hadn't had one disastrous semester of going pre-med and taking three classes where my entire grade was based on, you guessed it, multiple choice tests that were not unlike the SAT and ACT. Even after almost failing that semester, I graduated with a 3.75 GPA three years later. I think it's safe to say that my 800 meter and mile times were better predictors for the kind of student I would become than my ACT or SAT scores were. It got me thinking about why going to college is important at all. For me, it was getting to have Anthony Dorr as my very first creative writing teacher, and then Ron Kuka after that. Those two writers were some of the best teachers I've ever had and they encouraged and trained me at a time when I was too inexperienced and insecure to pursue writing without them. It was having Professor Dale Bauer, a woman who modeled the confidence and big ideas that I wanted to have but didn't yet have the imagination for. She taught me a feminism that prized the artistry and ideas of all people equally. She taught from a syllabus of almost exclusively women writers, it was sitting in awe of Professor Harold Scheub, who walked thousands of miles along the southeastern coast of Africa recording native storytellers, who could hush an auditorium of 500 students with his storytelling magic. 
His African storyteller class is where I first encountered Chinua Achebe and Bessie Head and realized that the world was so much bigger than I'd ever imagined. He was a sprightly white-haired man who was small in stature but giant in presence. He was a legend on campus and taught students like me for 43 years before he died this past October. College was all of those things, but it was also singing a cappella on stage at the Madison Symphony Hall. It was running through the Arboretum with former Olympians like Kathy Butler and Susie Favor Hamilton. It was pooling together money with my roommates and learning to cook from a copy of Bon Appetit. It was feeling lost in the faith I'd grown up with and then finding it again. It was late-night conversations with my roommates and the guys across the hall. Scott Galloway, a professor of marketing at the New York University Stern School of Business, says it like this. In my sophomore year at UCLA, I fell in love for the first time, learned my limits were not my real limits, joined crew, realized I would not be a doctor, failed chemistry, became less insecure about my insecurities, took enter to psychology, and developed resilience, had my heart broken. I'd like to think all these things would have happened whether or not I attended college, but they likely wouldn't have happened in such a safe and joyous place. Scott has a lot more to say about our university system, and I'm excited to share his work with you in future episodes. But for now, suffice it to say that for Scott and for me, college was about a lot more than school. I would even venture to say that my experiences outside the classroom were at least as important as the ones I had in them. If there is anything that unifies all of those very diverse experiences, it's that not a single one of them had a thing to do with my scores on a couple of standardized tests. The fact that I had not scored particularly well on them did not, in the end, make a bit of difference. Of course, the UC region's decision to ditch the ACT and SAT wasn't about kids like me. In his story for Cal Matters, Mikhail writes, The exams have long been the focus of critics who say they are racially biased and that they give a leg up to wealthier students whose families can afford expensive test preparation. He writes that Governor Gavin Newsom, who is a member of the UC Regents, said that using the national tests exacerbates the inequalities for underrepresented students, given that performance on these tests is highly correlated with race and parental income and is not the best predictor for college success. Mikhail quotes Varsha Sarvishwar, the current president of the University of California Student Association. Varsha says, The value in test prep is that a student has to set aside time in the evenings and weekends for weeks, if not months. I have that discipline today as a 22-year-old, but I sure didn't have it when I was 16. When you pay for test prep, You pay to turn standardized testing into a class. That may be a given for wealthier students, but it's largely out of reach for poorer ones. That is a classist and racist expectation, she said. I agree with Varsha. I think the assumption that everyone in this country has the ability and access to pay for test prep is a deeply flawed one. 
It assumes not only that everyone who would like to go to college has the money to pay for these classes, but that they come from a home where their parents have the time, energy, and education to understand just how important these tests are for their children's ability to pursue higher education. I'll take Varsha's statement one step further. I'd argue that I learned more about how to be a good student from the hundreds of miles I logged as a runner than I did from any test or classroom. I learned to work hard, even when I didn't feel like it, to bounce back from disappointments. From my years of singing in first a choir and then an a cappella group, I learned how to put the needs of others before my own, about how sometimes pulling back your own voice to make room for others creates something more beautiful than you could do alone. The skills and disciplines I value most today have very little to do with test-taking of any kind. Whether inside the classroom or out, my university experiences challenged my preconceived notions about the world. As a straight-shooting conservative 18-year-old suddenly dropped into the extremely progressive environment of Madison, Wisconsin, I had to decide which of my beliefs were worth fighting for. This didn't mean that I ditched all of my previous convictions, but it did mean that I learned to be a lot more thoughtful about the ones I held on to, and also more understanding of others' differences. I've already mentioned some of the teachers who mentored me, but equally valuable were upperclassmen who took me under their wing. My teammates Stephanie, April, Avery, Angie, Brianna, Jessica, and Sho, who guided me through injuries and overtraining. My student acapella director, Becky, who was the first person to see in me not just a choir member, but a soloist. She pushed me to audition for a song I never would have believed I could have pulled off, one that ended up winning our group a national award with the Best of College Acapella. I worry that today's online education will rob college students of the things I treasured most. But even more than that, I worry that the high cost of tuition and the elitist approach to entry will mean that whole scores of our population will never get to experience the guidance and mentoring that all people need to develop the confidence and imagination to reach beyond their potential. I'm concerned that our current admissions process is only exacerbating the wealth gap in our country. I wonder if it's finally time to change. When I was a student, I never questioned that process. It seemed totally normal to me that colleges would only accept the people who had scored highest or gotten the best grades or in some way proven themselves to be exceptional. But since then, my thinking on this has changed. If I, a jock with substandard test scores and only decent grades, could benefit from the people and experiences I encountered in college, then what about all of the other kids, or adults for that matter, who didn't have the luxury of an athletic scholarship to pave their way. Even without my running abilities, I likely would have gotten in somewhere because I had parents who were both the first in their families to go to college, who would support and encourage me as I struggled my way toward college admission. They couldn't make me better at taking tests, but they could pass on to me their value of education Neither of them came for money, but they experienced firsthand the way a college diploma can change your life and allow you to jump tracks economically. I encountered standardized tests again when I applied for graduate schools and had to take the GRE. This time around, I was in my 20s and a little wiser. 
I splurged for a GRE Kaplan course that promised me that I would finally overcome my test-taking struggles. Those scores were so bad that I have blocked them out. I don't even remember them anymore. It's worth noting that in all of my experiences with standardized testing, the one area where my scores were exceptional was writing. I don't share that to pat myself on the back. Certainly, my high school teachers and my parents can take a lot more credit for my writing ability at that point in my life than I could. But because I think it illustrates how narrow the intelligence is that those tests measure. I'm grateful that Mills College, the small liberal arts school where I got my MFA, put more stock in my writing abilities than they did in my test taking. I celebrate the UC system ditching the ACT and SAT, not only because I want college to be something that people from any background can work toward, but because I want college to be something that people with all kinds of intelligence can experience too. We say that we support the arts, that we believe in equality, but our current college admissions process says otherwise. It took me a lot of years to realize that I wasn't dumb just because I didn't score well on those tests. At 41 years old, I can finally appreciate that I brought other gifts to my college experience, ones that didn't show up very well on tests. Today is the first time I've shared my scores with anyone but my closest friends, because it's embarrassing to admit that I don't fit the system that I didn't measure up in some very specific way that society had told me I was supposed to. I was really lucky that running meant I got to find out what college was like. It turns out that I didn't have to be an all-star student in high school to be able to learn and grow in college. It makes me wonder about all of the people out there who think college isn't an option for them because they don't have the grades or test scores needed because they're working a minimum wage job to support their family, or they've never been given permission to dream beyond the life they're in. So today, my daily gift of sanity to you is this. Whether your children are finishing high school and heading off to college, or wondering what to do next, or so young that college is a place they don't yet have a word for, let's give ourselves and our kids a vision for a different way forward. Let's put aside our cynicism and despair long enough to believe it's possible to create a system that prioritizes potential and willingness to learn over circumstances and wealth. We're not going to do it all at once and probably will have to take many steps back before we take any steps forward. But if we can start teaching our children, start teaching ourselves, that we don't have to accept this narrow view of education that we've been sold for so long, then maybe there's hope that things can be different. Maybe by the time my children are old enough to think about college, they'll encounter a system that welcomes them, regardless of how they scored on some test. When we were first dating, Nate and I had to work through the baggage those test scores brought to our relationship. He's one of the people along the way who has helped me to embrace the kind of intelligence I have, a kind that is very different than the one he possesses. As I was working on this episode, he poked his head in and joked that if test scores were reliable predictors for success, I'd be working for him instead of him working for me. What we scored on those tests has absolutely nothing to do with the life we are living right now. 
We had a good laugh about that. Because really, it doesn't matter. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, the best way you can support it is to subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes so others can find it too. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. I am so grateful to be sponsored by a small local business that isn't just committed to making great wines, but to making this world a better place. Get 10% off your order when you use the promo code SHELTER at brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com. When you buy wine, you support this show and also other businesses that are working toward more sustainable living. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.